0: Faith, hope, and love, three basic virtues of the Christian life. And I always think that um, faith is always based on the past. Faith is Our faith is based on what God has said in the past and what God has done in the past because God always goes first. God loves first. God creates first. God speaks first. God goes first, and we respond to him uh, in faith. We trust him, what he says. We trust in what he does for us at this stage of uh, history. Uh, our faith is in what Jesus accomplished on the cross uh, more than 2,000 years ago. And so faith is something that's, you know, based on the past. Hope is always about the future. Hope is about looking forward, right? Uh, we hope uh, based on the promises that God has made for the future, um, At least a quarter, and some uh, scholars say up to a third of the scriptures when they were written were prophetic. In other words, uh, God told us what's going to happen in the future way before it ever happened. If you just think of the first coming of Jesus, uh, you recognize how much scripture was devoted so that nobody would miss it when Christ came, and yet people still missed, uh, especially the Jewish people. And, um, but hope is based on the future, based on the promises that God has made about the future, uh, promises that Jesus is coming back, we sang about it this morning, uh, that there's going to be a new creation someday, and and that everything's going to be right, everything that's wrong is going to be right someday, and so we have hope, and it it focuses us uh, into the future, faith based on the past, hope for the future, love for the present. What's the most important virtue for a Christian to embrace uh, in, in our lifetimes? And I want to suggest to you that love is for now. Love is for uh, the present. Uh, love is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience in Galatians. talks about the fruits of the Spirit. The eight that follow uh, the first one, love, uh, really are different dimensions of what it means to actually love. Uh, when Paul wrote to the church in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, here's how he put it. He said, uh, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against somebody else, forgiving them, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all of these, put on love. Right, which binds all of that together. Love is like the umbrella, you know, virtue, if you will, uh, out of which comes all of these other uh, qualities that mark our lives when we're becoming more and more Christ like. But I want to suggest to you, too, that the word love uh, is easily misunderstood in our culture. Uh, We say things like, you know, I love God and I love ice cream in the same sentence. You know, and you say, oh, what's with that? Or, I love my spouse and I love my car. And, uh, you know, in the same sentence with the same word. And so you kind of have to ask the question, you know, well, what really is love? And uh, lots of people think that love is a feeling, right? That, that, and, and love certainly can influence our feelings. Uh, but I think love is more than a feeling, uh, sometimes people say, you know, I'm falling in love, and you know, it's like I'm tripping over something, and something is just happening to me, and it just comes out of nowhere, and and I'm falling in love, and I can't help it, and it's just, you know, happening to me. I have no control over it. It's like tripping over something. Uh, but love is something that God says we're supposed to uh, do, and so certainly some aspect of love must be within our control. It must be Uh, controllable, not kind of uncontrollable, if you will. Love is something that we have some authority over, but at the same time, love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if God is not in our lives, present by his Spirit, uh, there's a dimension of love that we simply can't uh, give or we can't do, if you will. So the truth is, love is a choice, right? And um, we choose to love or choose not to love, and love is an action. It's not just words. It's not a feeling, um, but love is uh, action. First John uh, 3.18, you might be familiar with this uh, passage of Scripture, uh, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, in deeds, in our actions and in what we do, and in truth. So I think part of the problem, uh, why there's confusion and why the word uh, love is uh, sometimes used in various ways is because there are four, you probably know this, four Greek words for only our one English word, love. And every time you see the word love in the Bible, it's translating one of four different words that are given to us in the Greek language, which all have different nuances of meaning. So we say love, but we don't know which nuance, you know. We really mean so the four Greek words. The first one is storge, and it just means like a natural affection, just like I love ice cream, okay, Uh, or chocolate, or whatever your favorite thing is. Uh, The second word in the Greek language is eros, which talks about a sexual attraction. I love my spouse. Uh, Philia is the third word, and, uh, you know, it's uh, in the word Philadelphia, uh, city of brotherly love, and that's what it means. Philia is a a love for another person, like a family kind of love, a a, a brotherly uh, kind of love. And then, of course, there's the word agape, and agape is a sacrificial kind of love or an unconditional kind of love. Every time you read in the Bible about God's love for us, the word is always agape. It's a sacrificial uh, kind of love. And um, I think it's significant. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 13, you remember uh, in, in John 13, Jesus said, I'm just leaving you with one new commandment. You already know all the commandments and so forth, but I'm gonna, he was talking to his disciples, he's talking about leaving and so forth. And in John thirteen thirty four, here's what the Lord said. He said, a new commandment, a new, one new commandment, right? That I'm gonna give to you. I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that's nothing new. That was all over the Old Testament, and everybody knew that. Uh, But here's what he said. Love one another just as I love you. Now, that's a whole new thing. When you think about how it is that God in Christ loves us, it's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a different kind of love than anything else in the world. And Jesus says, this is the one new commandment. This is the one thing that's going to be different after I'm gone. You're going to love people the way I love you. And then, on top of that, look what he added in the very next verse. Um, He says, by this, everybody in the world will understand that we're Christians. You want to do evangelism? You want to help people understand what God is really like? When we love the way we are loved by Christ, the world will recognize there's something different about these people. There's something different about these people. They're not waiting for somebody else to go first. They're like God. He goes first. He loves first. He speaks first. He tells truth first. And we take that initiative as Christians because we represent God in our world. And so we're not afraid, you know, to move into people's lives uh, with the love of God that fills our hearts and uh, moves uh, people closer and closer to the Lord. So the parable, the story that Jesus told that we come up against this morning is in Luke chapter 10. You're probably very familiar with it. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's about love, Right? And uh, it's a favorite of uh, many people. And Jesus tells this story about the Good Samaritan in response to a question that was asked by a Jewish lawyer. Now, uh, a Jewish lawyer, also called a scribe in the New Testament, uh, was somebody who was an expert in Old Testament law. Somebody who understood the scriptures. They were basically a theologian. And their job was to understand the Old Testament and help people apply God's truth to their everyday lives. Okay? And uh, this uh, guy, this Jewish lawyer, um, um, asked Jesus a question. And we pick it up in uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, can I just tell you, that's never a good idea. You never win when you put Jesus to the test. If you're going to try to trap Jesus, you know, with the truth or whatever, it's not going to happen. It's just never a good idea. So uh, right off the bat, this guy's got, okay, I would say the wrong motive in asking Jesus a question. He's got an agenda. But he's a lawyer, right? We're kind of used to that. So a lawyer, do we have any lawyers here? (laughs) No, okay, I'm safe. So this lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test, and he asks this question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, wrong motive, but put the motive aside, that is a great question. That is a question that every single man and woman should ask themselves. Every single boy and girl should ask themselves, how do I inherit eternal life? That is a really important question, wouldn't you say? Every person should ask that question. What about eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? Everybody should ask that question. Um, You know, the Bible actually says, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, that God has put eternity in people's hearts. So if you never ask that question, I know something about you, you're living in denial or you're scared to death to ask that question. What happens to me after I die? Right? Because if God has put eternity in our hearts, everybody has this kind of in their mind, but they might be afraid to ask that question because they don't have an answer or they might be in denial because they know they don't deserve And they don't know the gospel. They don't know that God has actually done something and that God desires them to be with him in eternity. And so they're afraid to ask this question. But eternal life is what this life is all about, and it's what happens to us after we die. Uh, And it's the life of God, it's eternal life. Now, notice how Jesus responds to this question What do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't say, Well, what do you think? You know, uh, I've been to lots of Bible studies, and sometimes in Bible studies we say, well, what do you think? Well, it's really not that important what you think. (laughs) Jesus asks the question, what does the book say? Right? He's talking to this lawyer who's, you know, uh, an expert in Old Testament law, and Jesus doesn't say, well, what do you think? He says, um, what's written? What's written in the law? What does God's word say? That's what Bible study's about. It's not for all of us to get together and just share what we think. It's to find out what does the word of God say and to compare scripture with scripture so that we're sure we're getting the right interpretation of any particular part of it. And uh, so, how do you read it? He said, yeah, you're a lawyer. What does it say? How do you interpret it? Okay. Now, um. Here's what he says. So the lawyer answers him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, bingo! You got it! That's exactly right! You are right on! That is the right answer. Look at that. Jesus says to him in the next verse, you have answered correctly. Then Jesus spoiled it. He said, do this. Oh, I have to do it. Now all of a sudden the lawyer's checking out. Now before we get on the lawyer's case too much, we all do this. We all think that, you know, as long as we know the right answer, that's all we need. But Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You got the right answer. Now go do it. Now the lawyer knew that he was in trouble. Right now, the lawyer knew that the tables were being turned on him. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is testing the lawyer publicly, and the lawyer knows, Well, I I don't really live like that. In fact, you know, uh, I can't live like that. Who loves God with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their strength, all of their soul? Who does that? And who loves their neighbor as much as they love themselves? Who has conquered selfishness to the degree that you live for the next guy as much as you live for yourself? Who does that? People don't live like that. And the lawyer knew he didn't live like that. And um, so you notice what happens here, the next verse, verse 29. Desiring to justify himself, he's on the hook. Jesus has got him backed into a corner, he wants to justify himself. And again, before we get on this guy too much, we do this all the time. You know, we kind of create a narrative for ourselves. When we're up against something and we know we're kind of caught out or we feel guilty, we just kind of create a narrative. And we, well, you know, I I was only 20 when that happened. And, you know, I didn't really know much then or... You know, I didn't have the best uh, upbringing and my parents didn't teach me that that was right and wrong and so forth. Well, this lawyer, he's like, well, how can I love my neighbor if I don't know who my neighbor is? Uh, he's a lawyer, right? So he's going to say, let, let, let's have a debate about this. Let's discuss this. Let's, I think I could win a debate with you, Jesus, and you know, let's get into this. But desiring to justify himself, he asks a second question, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? And again, he's seeking to justify himself and um, because he doesn't do what he knows he should do. But rather than admit it and say, you know, I don't live like that. I need to change. I need to do better. I need to, you know, uh, do what I know to be the right thing to do. And again, we, we probably all have things. So There's probably somebody you know that you should forgive, but you, you haven't forgiven them yet. Why not? There's probably something you know that the Lord wants you to do with your finances, and you haven't done it yet. Why not? You know, there's probably something that you know the Lord wants you to do to serve Him in some kind of ministry or whatever, and you're, you're hesitant, you know? And we all do this. You know, it's, we know more than we do. I call it the knowing-doing gap. There's always a gap between what I know. But sometimes as Christians, we think, as long as we know the right answer, we're cool. And God's happy with us. Because we can parrot back to him, what he told us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right, you know. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, I got it. But do it. Do it. And then this guy tries to check out. And so trying to justify himself well who's my neighbor and so uh, he realizes he's kind of getting trapped so to get himself off the hook he asks this you know because um, scribes in those days and many Christians in our day sort of think that their neighbor is just people like them and the scribes used to think that you know righteous people like the scribes and the Pharisees were my neighbors But sinners and Gentiles and non-Jewish people and uh, especially Samaritans who were half Jewish and half Assyrian, um, you know, they, they were, God hated those people. And so it became a virtue in the Pharisee camp and in the scribes' way of thinking to hate people. That was a virtue. If you hated the right people, that's what made you a good person. Sinners, tax collectors, that whole bucket in which you know these bad people existed. Okay, So now Jesus tells the story. And I didn't put it up on the slides because I thought you're probably familiar with it anyway. As I read it, you just try to imagine it. Try to uh, picture this happening. Um, deciding to uh, justify himself, he asked the question, who's my neighbor? So Jesus replied, Um, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. We can watch this on the news pretty regularly today. Um, Who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where he was, and when he saw him, here's the difference, he had compassion. Compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds and he poured oil and wine and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and he took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That's the story. The good Samaritan. And then, of course, uh, Jesus asks the question, the next uh, verse in verse 36 um, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer, of course, is forced to respond. He doesn't say the Samaritan, you'll notice. He just comes back and says, well, the one who ministered to the guy. Um, He wouldn't say Samaritan. But anyway, uh, so Jesus tells the story and uh, basically says, look, what's needed is not more debate over who's my neighbor. What's needed is more love. What's needed in our world, what the world needs now, right, is love, sweet love, right? Sweet love, God's love, compassion, Um. Grace, forgiveness, the components of love. If you think about our world today, um, and those elements of love usually lead to evangelism because there's no real love of people without helping people understand that the only solution to all of life's dilemmas is the gift of salvation through Christ. Um, And so love is kind of a prelude, if you will, uh, to evangelism, and so a couple of passages of scriptures that uh, talk about that in Galatians, for example, uh, we, we would understand that um, I think we would understand that the law and uh, guilt is a prelude to driving us to find a solution for it which can only be found and resolved in the gospel. in Galatians chapter three and uh, verse twenty two uh, the Apostle Paul writes to uh, the Galatian people, and uh, Galatians what did I say, 322 right? I'm sorry. yeah, I'm sorry. Here we are. Now before faith came, this is what Paul is writing to the Galatian people, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. right? We were imprisoned, he said, We were guilty until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons and daughters of the living God. Uh, The law and guilt has a purpose. You know, when people feel unworthy of eternity, there's a reason that it's true. And uh, it's a a prelude to be able to share with people the good news of the gospel, that there's a different way uh, by which we can be reconciled to God. In this same chapter, in verse 10, um, the Apostle Paul writes like this. He says, "...for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse." the Pharisees and the scribes counted on the fact that they were better than everybody else, right? Now, I think it's very relevant, very contemporary. I would say 90% of the people that I've talked to over my 100 years of living or whatever, you know, when I sat down and said, you know, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Uh, I would say a good 95% of the people say, oh yes. And I say, well, why do you think that? I would say 99% of the people that I talked to would say, because I'm a good person. Try it, just try it, just get in a conversation with somebody and just ask them, you know, uh, talk about, you know, how the world is and, wow, do you think it's going to end soon or ever, and, you know, and just ask them, you know, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? And most people say yes, and if you ask them, well, why do you think that? They almost always will say, well, because I'm a good person. But here, here's what the scripture says: For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, "Cursed is everybody who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them." Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Nobody. Uh, Paul, I think, says a similar thing in Romans, um, in Romans chapter 13. Uh, Paul says it like this. He says, owe nobody anything except to love each other. We owe it to other people to love them. Why? Because God loves them. God so loves the world that he gave up his only begotten son. And so we owe it as God's children to love them uh, for God's sake. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We owe it to the world that God has put us in uh, to be the sources of love. You know, so many people, it seems to me, as Christians, get hurt along life's way. We get burned, right? I mean, it happens. And uh, we get uh, spurned by a friend or rejected or whatever happens to us. And we tell ourselves, you know, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. That hurt. and That smarted. And I'm just never going to let that happen to me again. And so we start to withdraw. We start to pull back. We become less vulnerable. But in the process, we lose. We become less loving. And we become less Christ-like. Because we're protecting ourselves rather than investing ourselves. When we start to protect instead of invest in the kingdom of God, we begin to kind of shrink and we begin to kind of die. And our usefulness to God begins to uh, shrivel. We protect instead of invest ourselves. Love is central to God. Uh, In fact, the Bible says God is love, right? And that we love, why? Because he first loves us. He goes first. He always goes first. He loves us before we ever even knew him. He loves us. And there is nothing that can take the place of love. Everybody needs to be loved. But people experience God's love through us. Can you think of an experience in your life where somebody, one of God's uh, children, came and did something that was very loving and it made an impression upon you that actually changed your life. I mean love changes people. Right? It really does. And uh we could talk about examples of that and I I think this morning you know we actually uh read it um in Ephesians uh this prayer of the apostle Paul. He 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 Laura commented on it this morning. Uh verse 17 and 18 of Ephesians chapter 3. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, uh, that you, being rooted and grounded in God's love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the other saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's not a statement. Here's God's will for your life that you would be filled with the fullness of God's love for you, which has no limits. It's so wide and so long and so deep and so high. There's no limitations on God's love. The lawyer asks the question, who's my neighbor? So I know who to love. And God basically is saying, there is no limitation. Your neighbor is anybody that you come in contact with that has a need that you can meet in Jesus' name, right? Love is meeting needs with deeds meeting needs with deeds it's action oriented and it's a prelude to evangelism in uh, jesus story the samaritan loves by meeting the physical social and financial needs of this guy uh, who jesus calls his neighbor uh, who happens to be the victim of violence Love is meeting needs through deeds and uh, felt needs like for friendship, for health care, for, you know, food, for justice. Uh, take deeds of love, kindness, patience, evangelism, and ultimately the gift of uh, God's salvation. In Matthew chapter 25, um, Jesus uh, talks about his return and when he returns he says there's going to be a judgment and uh, people in all nations are going to be separated like goats and sheep. You remember this in Matthew chapter 25 and um, uh, really uh, if you read that passage you realize that the Lord sort of uh, sorts people out um, based on the fruits of their faith versus lip service and he's kind of looking for the fruits of people's faith. It's uh, the passage that talks about, you know, giving a cup of cold water and visiting the prisoner and helping the healing and clothing the naked and doing the good deeds that uh, God, that Jesus did while he was here. And our actions, you know, we're very clear on this and I think we all understand this. Our actions are not the root of our faith, but they are the fruit of our faith. It's God's love for us that's the root of our salvation, but it's our love for others that is the fruit of our salvation. And uh, when I get those confused, but they're both important. Our love is the fruit of God's love in us. And when that lawyer asked the question, you know, who's my neighbor? I think he was trying to reduce uh, the significance of neighbor love or uh, the demands of neighbor love. But Jesus points out that that God's love can't be uh, reduced. It's agape love. It's unconditional And Jesus basically, it seems to me, reverses the question. Instead of saying, you know, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, listen, whose neighbor are you? All around us, there's needy people, right? And the real question, Jesus just turned it around, is, wait a minute, whose neighbor are you? You could be a neighbor to anybody that you come in contact with, you know? And uh, we are in the world to be that source of light in the midst of the darkness, Uh, in order that we might draw people to the goodness of God through the gospel. Unlike the priest who came by, an official of the temple, and who ignored the needy man or the Levite, who would have been a priest's assistant, the Samaritan had uh, compassion. And, you know, compassion or agape love always costs something. You can tell, you know, if you're being a neighbor, by whether or not you're kind of aggravated, at least on the surface, because it's costing you something right I mean a lot of us sort of again we protect ourselves because uh, we don't want to kind of pay the price but for the Samaritan if you just think about it uh, I bet this was pretty inconvenient for him I mean he was going someplace down the road he's trying to get to Jericho or wherever and uh, you know all of a sudden he sees this guy he's like what am I gonna do you know and uh, it might have been a little bit risky because the robbers might still be around I'm sure it was an interruption to his agenda. And, uh, you know, it took effort. Uh, the guy puts the, uh, the robbed guy on his animal, the Bible says, and that means he has to walk to the inn himself. He's inconvenienced. He doesn't get to ride in his air-conditioned car, donkey, or whatever. Then it cost him some money, right? He had to pay, and, uh, and it cost him some time. He's, you know, delayed for a day or two and uh, off his uh, agenda and so forth. But it all comes from a changed heart. It all comes from a heart that, you know, has compassion. And um, God offered us everything in Jesus. And the question is, what are we willing to offer him back? I don't know if you're familiar, but in the Old Testament, David messed up. He messed up a couple times, but he, he counted all the people and he wasn't supposed to. And God said, I want you to uh, make a sacrifice. I want you to make an offering. And so David was looking for a piece of property. And he was going to buy some stuff and build an altar and make his sacrifice. And he comes across this guy, uh, Orman. Uh, Orman, And uh, Orman knows who David is a little bit. And so he says, look, I want to give you my property. He had a thrashing floor, kind of a nice spot on the top of a hill, wind blow. you know. And I'll give you this. And I'll give you all the supplies you need to build your altar. And David says, no. He said, you know what he said? He said, I refuse to give to God that which costs me nothing. I am not gonna take charity from you in order to make an offering to God for my sin. I refuse to give to God that which costs me nothing. Because why? Because God gave us what cost him everything. His only begotten son, crucified on Calvary's cross, so that you and I can be qualified uh, to live eternal life. So Jesus asked the question, you know, who showed love, and the guy is the lawyer is forced to say the one who, uh, the one who's showed mercy. And so, again, Jesus says, "Go, go and do likewise." Go. So I would suggest to you today that when we um, completely understand that you and I are sinners saved by the plain, unmerited grace of God. And when we experience that love kind of exploding in our hearts, how wide it is, how long it is, how deep it is, how high it is, that that love has no limits that God has for us. Whatever you've done, God will forgive you, right? There's no limits to that. And when that love becomes a reality, we will be changed. The gospel changes everything, changes us. Our job is not to go change people. Our job is to love people. The gospel changes people. Our job is to love people and to share the gospel with them so that the gospel by God's spirit gets into people's lives and changes them. God's love is intended to be given away. Somebody said it's not a song until it's sung. It's not a bell until it's rung and it's not love until you give it away. Right? So... God's love intended to be given away. The only one who can stop us from being more loving is us. And God is for us in this and will do it with us. And so this morning as we come to communion, um, I would just like to suggest that uh, God has given us a way to never forget what was done for us. To never forget the gift that God put on the cross so that we could have eternal life. And eternal life, I believe, starts now. It's kind of a quality of life that's ours now and continues on after we pass. Um, and so uh, he's given us this uh, symbol of uh, bread and juice uh, to remember his body, uh, Christ's body and blood on the cross. And uh, the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians was instructing the church about uh, communion. And uh, you might remember uh, what he said, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. And uh, Paul said this, he said, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we wanna just take a few minutes this morning to examine ourselves and to just kinda have a little quiet moment between you and the Lord. And uh, just think about, you know, maybe there's a gap between what I know God wants me to do and what I'm actually doing. And this would be a time to bring it before him and this would be a time then to experience the forgiveness of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the second chances of God and to be inspired to uh, go and to live at the next level for wherever we're at. So let's just take a few moments and uh, go before the Lord silently and let's just uh, examine ourselves.